Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Now, this episode is not about food, but I'd like to start it with a quote from a famous food writer, M.F.K. Fisher. Wine and cheese are ageless companions, she once wrote, like aspirin and aches, or June and moon, or good people and noble ventures. Good people. My podcast this week is all about what happens when you connect with and you surround yourself with good people. Wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't connected with some good people at Sportique, Matt Altman and Jason Franklin. Sportique has been sponsoring big questions for a while now, but if anything tells you that it's much more than a sponsorship, it's this week's episode. My friends have become their friends and their friends have become my friends. My guest this week, David Griffin, is the man who runs the New Orleans Pelicans of the National Basketball Association. He's already won an NBA title, guiding the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2016, and he just started with the Pelicans as the Vice President of Basketball Operations in April. I probably never would have met Griff if not for my friendship with Matt and Jason at Sportique, As soon as I got on the phone with Griff, I felt a deep connection with him. Conversation you're about to hear points out that our bond is related to recognizing when you're around good people and the gratitude that comes along with it. That seems to be the centerpiece of Griff's life. You don't have to be a big basketball fan to appreciate this episode. Gets to some deep questions. How do you get to where you want to go in life? How comfortable can you be with the discomfort it takes to get you to where you want to go? And it will go to a highly uncomfortable place that will make everyone think. So there's no need for me to spout out offer codes right now. If you're curious, you'll go to sportique.com and find out for yourself why both Griff and I are so attached to this company. I'll drop in the Sportique discount after the conversation is through and also tell you how to meet some good people who might change your life through my other sponsor, WeWork. But right now, I'm just going to get straight to a conversation with a guy who started out as an intern in a public relations department with a dream. A guy who found himself in the position to draft Zion Williamson, one of the greatest talents to come into the NBA with the first choice in the most recent draft. And trust me, when you finish this conversation, you'll see why something beautiful is about to be created in New Orleans. We're on with the man who everybody pretty much calls Griff. How you doing? I'm doing well, Cal. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be with you today. And uh, I've been waiting for this for a long, long time. And who would have thunk it that you would be basically guiding the New Orleans Pelicans when we when we met? Yeah. When we first talked, I, it certainly wasn't the vision I had. Um, I was really comfortable in the life I was leading at the time. And I'm incredibly grateful and feel really blessed that this situation evolved in the way it did with Mrs. Benson and her ownership group, but it's, it's, it's been a remarkable journey to this point. When we started talking, 
I was pretty astonished to find out that you had climbed in basketball from being an intern in like the public relations department. How did this ascent take you to a place where you're now got the first pick in the NBA draft and drafting Zion Williamson and are on the path to creating a culture that may sustain for a long time. Yeah, I mean, there was so much that went into it. Um, I, I think I, I was always really fortunate growing up. I had a real sense of where I was supposed to be. Um, I had a feel for, I guess, energetically, I just kind of knew what was right for me. Um, and I, I made a lot of decisions that probably didn't seem right to people from the outside. Um, when I made the decision to go <laughs> be an intern with the Suns, uh, I turned down an opportunity with Foot Locker Asia, uh, where they were going to send me to, to Taiwan National University to become fluent in Chinese. I started schools uh, in international finance and minored in Chinese and thought I was going to be part of the great westernization of China uh, in the late 80s. And uh, that was my goal when I got to school. And just through an unbelievable sort of unforeseen circumstance or set of circumstances rather, um, got hooked up with a guy by the name of Dave Cooper. David coached a team in a YMCA league that I ran. And he also happened to work for sports information at the University of Arizona. And the University of Arizona Wildcats were in the process of going to the final four at the time with Steve Kerr, ironically enough, leading the team. And, uh, he got me a job in sports information. He ended up getting me a job as an intern with the Suns, and one thing led to another, and it's just been an incredible, incredible blessing. So let's back up a moment here. What was it that got in your mind to westernize China? Yeah. Um, now, so, what, what year are we talking about? So this would have been 19 when I... Uh, Started at the University of Arizona would have been 1988. Oh, so this is like a decade, more than a decade before Yao Ming. Right. Yep. And it was uh, it was the right time. Certainly, uh, I had gone through. Uh, I had gone to a high school in Phoenix uh, called Brophy Prep, and uh, had kind of paid my way through high school to go to a school with a bunch of kids that were far smarter than I was, um, and it was very clear there that that was sort of going to be the next frontier, that if you were going to be part of uh, really building and amassing great wealth, that that would be a way to do it. And I grew up um, with a single mother who raised the two of us by herself, and great wealth was not something we had, but it was certainly something that I coveted at the time. So you're um, in Phoenix, yep. and you could sense China is going to be rising in yeah. the future. Yeah, for sure. And politically, you could tell that it was going to be something that was an opportunity. Um, I was always really intrigued by the culture to begin with. Um, and I, I think what ended up happening was during the course of going through um, sort of preparations for college, um, I, I was just exposed to the notion that that was going to be the future. I had a political science professor at the University of Arizona who was really helpful in helping guide that thought process as well. Um, and so it was sort of what I was somewhat fixated on. And the way I got hooked up with Foot Locker Asia was 
while trying to pay for school, I was working uh, for a footlocker chain called Athletic Express and uh, had some success managing the store through a, a difficult time uh, in, in a place called Elcon Mall, which I'll never forget in Tucson. And uh, it just, one thing sort of led to another. And I, the universe doesn't make mistakes. I, I really believe that. And I believe David Cooper was an angel in my life at the time that was guiding me where I was meant to be. He remains one of the people in my life I'm closest to, um, along with Matt Altman, who I met along the same period of time. Um, Matt and, is at Sportique. You're wearing a Sportique I am. Shirt. I am. The we're universe doesn't about, make mistakes. We're going to talk about Sportique. Yeah. Um, but it just was, it was crazy that everything happened the way that it did. And ultimately, the way I got to the Suns, which was the coolest thing, I was a lifelong live and die Suns fan. And had done all kinds of things in my life to make sure that I could go to games. My birthday present and Christmas present every year were Suns tickets. Um, and so the only games that I saw were came from that. Um, and so I tended to see a couple games a year in person. And I was just as into the Suns as you could possibly be. And the year that I was supposed to leave to go to Taiwan, I had knee surgery. And I was rehabbing from knee surgery um, at my grandmother's house in Phoenix. And I was basically on a recliner, um, sort of convalescing during the time that the Phoenix Suns go to the finals and play the Bulls in the finals and Charles Barkley's MVP. And it was the greatest Suns season ever to that point. And I couldn't wait to, to watch the next game. And Dave Cooper happened to be interning for the Suns. And when the team has the second place parade in June, um, 300,000 people from Phoenix showed up to celebrate second place. And Coop asked me the next day if I wanted to be an intern. And I said, well, sure, of course I do. And I just immediately changed course, everything that I was going to do. Um, I, I just completely changed so that I could be part of the Suns organization. And I had never been in communications classes. I was not enrolled in classes at Arizona State. So I enrolled in classes at Arizona State in communications and went from there. Was much of this from that point on planned or was the universe constantly intervening and saying, Griff, go this way? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. So my, my, my family lore, uh, part of family history is when I was six years old, the Phoenix Suns lost to the Boston Celtics in triple overtime in 1976 in the finals. I remember that game. It was, I believe it was game five was the shot heard around the world from Gar Heard. And I was watching the game and we end up losing the game and I storm out of the room and I storm back in the room in tears. And I say, I'm going to be better than Jerry Colangelo. I'm going to win a championship. <laughs> oh, man. And this is a six-year-old David Griffin. But so, that's the amazing thing is most kids would have thought, I'm going to hit the shot to win the game. You thought, I'm going to assemble a team that is going to win the championship. It's funny now to think six. about. It's funny to think about because even then, I think I had a very real recognition that I was not going to be very good <laughs> athletically. <laughs> I know you're supposed to dream great things as a kid about yourself, but I, I knew that I was not going to be a professional athlete at that time. Um, so you knew that you were an assembler of pieces. I guess so. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. You know, what I... I think what I knew, and I think what my mom would say, is that I knew I wanted to be the boss of everything. <laughs> and Jerry Colangelo <laughs> was the boss. And so I wanted to be Jerry. 
And it was such an incredible, fortuitous set of circumstances that led me to get to be with Jerry, to be part of that family. And Brian and Jerry did such an amazing job of of letting me in on things. I mean, there's no way that happens for anybody else, the way it happened with us. And I just, I'll never stop being grateful to Jerry and Brian for even giving me the opportunity to be around them. Um, when I shared that story about storming out of the room uh, with Jerry for the first time. Did he laugh? He did, but he, he didn't take it quite as well as I hoped he would. Um, <laughs> there was a little bit of that, oh, you think so, huh? Um, and I realize now just the hubris that it took then to even dream of that is At crazy. six years old. Well, and even once I got to the organization, I'm an intern in media relations, and I'm telling Jerry Colangelo I want to do what he does someday. I mean, that I can't even imagine what that must have been like from Jerry's perspective to hear this kid say that. So That must have separated you from every other intern that came in that, that somebody would say, I want to be you and better than you. Yeah, I I think it probably did separate me. I don't know for better or worse. Wow. Um, the people that were interns with me all thought I was insane. But I, what, why? It, like, what would you do to make them think you were insane? Well, for starters, when you're all together and they're talking about what you want to do, you know, in your future, and I said, "Well, I'm, I want to run the Phoenix Suns." <laughs> They, <laughs> they're like, yeah, well, of course you do. And I want a pony. I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of funny. I think the way, the way that all evolved. Um, and I'm still really close to many of those people. Jeremy McPeak, um, who has a consulting company now around social media was with me in, in PR there. Um, Matt, who we mentioned was with us. Would everybody uh, know, like along the way, I am going to be running an NBA franchise and I'm going to win an NBA championship. It's funny. I think most of them now have been asked about it in hindsight and they, most of them kind of fall back on the Griff just believed it with every fiber of his body. None of us did, but he did. <laughs> um, and that's sort of become a familiar refrain, actually. I, I think you can really manifest what you want in your life simply by visualizing it and believing in it with every fiber of your body. Now, there's a difference between that and being delusional. And you have to really sort of, I think, um, Where is that decode line? that energy. Right? Where is that line? I think I've just been really fortunate. I don't know how to tell anybody else how to read your life that way, but I've always been blessed with this ability to just sort of divine where I'm meant to be. I think the energy of it sometimes attracts you to it. Um, but I, I think I just knew. And, and even now, I, I think about the fact when my mother sent me off to school for the first time, I started school early because I had a November birthday. So I started me too. kindergarten. Me too, with four years yeah, old. Yeah, four yeah. years old. Right. And I was the smallest kid in school me too. by a whole bunch. <laughs> and my mom said, just remember this, you can do and be anything you want. And I remembered it every day of my life. And it literally sometimes brings me to tears thinking about her sending me off to school that day because I was terrified. And when she told me that, I wasn't afraid anymore. And I've always believed in my heart I could do anything I wanted to. And it's such a blessing to have been raised by somebody who was fearless. I'm very curious, and I'm think, trying to think like a millennial now or even somebody younger, because a lot of kids are asking me questions like, 
how do I become? And it seems like the infrastructure, which existed 20 and 30 years ago, is no longer there. There were, there were tracks to, to get on. Uh, and if you were in journalism, you knew what track to get on. And you knew that if you just kept on moving, ultimately you, you might get to where you wanted to go. But it doesn't exist anymore. What I'm wondering is, what did you do as an intern to make people look at you and say, wow, we, nobody's ever done that before? <laughs> yeah. um, I guess one was be relentless. I mean, I was, I was there always. You know, we, we got paid $25 a game, and I would still be in the office as much as possible, trying to learn as much as I could. Um, there was a guy by the name of Seth Sulka who was the assistant director of media relations at the time, who was doing something, uh, he was writing something called Game Notes, which were statistical observations of the team that they broke down in sort of bite-sized pieces for the media. And Game Notes were really um, analytically based. And they were sort of the first bastion of the analytics wave that came into sports were Game Notes. In all sports, there were Game Notes. And I just sort of took that to another level, I think. Um, I, I took what we were doing in that space a little further maybe than had been done before because I was a nerd and I just thought of things that way. So if um, you were Jerry Colangelo looking at this, you're seeing something you've never seen before. Yeah, and I think it really was Brian Colangelo who had taken over as the general manager. He was 29 when he took over as the general manager. So he was a little more progressive in his thoughts. And I think he was more open-minded to some things. But what I did, what really enabled me to, to continue to progress was the Phoenix Suns ran something called the Nike Desert Classic. And it was a senior all-star game and for college kids that were entering the draft. And I was the team representative at the hotel um, that would hand out per diem. And through that, I would start to get to know the kids a little bit. I would get to give out credentials to the other NBA personnel. So I was meeting them all the time and talking about the game with them all the time. And I just was given an opportunity to really immerse myself in it. And I sort of continued to grow and evolve the analytical side of things. Um, and when I look back now on what we were doing, it's incredibly rudimentary. I mean, I couldn't get a job as an analytics guy right now. Um, but at the time, what we were doing was somewhat unique. And all of the different... Um, people that we were meeting along the way were starting to sort of think, oh, this kid thinks a little differently than other people. So by the absolute grace of God, Ron Michael, um, who was a scout at the time for the Golden State Warriors, was going to take a coaching job at Scottsdale Community College um, and continue to scout. And he talked to me about being an assistant because he thought I might be able to help him recruit. And so I was working in the in the Suns organization and I was coaching at Scottsdale Community College and got to work with some great people. Greg Lansing, who's now the head coach at Indiana State University, helped us help teach me how to recruit. A guy by the name of Darius Floyd was the other coach who coached with us. He went on to be an assistant at Drake. Um, and, and we were just fortunate. We had a lot of fun together learning more about the game of basketball. We recruited seven kids ended up going to Division I basketball. Wow. Scottsdale hadn't had one in many years, and we got seven all at one time. That sort of helped further oh, the cause. Okay. Golden State 
is going to offer me a job in basketball operations. Gary St. Jean and Gary Fitzsimmons were going to give me an opportunity to work in basketball operations and do this stat stuff that I was doing. Um, and Brian Colangelo got wind of it. I, I think, fortunately, I, I think I'm so grateful all the time that Gary St. Jean and Gary Fitzsimmons called and asked for permission from Brian to talk to me. And Brian brought me in and he said, what the hell is this all about? <laughs> and, and I told him, I said, Brian, I told you I want to do what you do someday. And I can't do that if I don't get into basketball operations. And he said, okay, don't go anywhere. I'll, I'll put you in the video room on Monday and you can start working for me in basketball. So I went from P being full-time in PR at that time. This is three years after I started. I went from being full-time in PR to working in the video room. And when you're doing coaches and basketball video at the time, it was all deck to deck, tape to tape. And I worked all day, every day, watching more basketball. And uh, So now you're watching, really how, how many hours a day are you watching basketball? Well, back then it was deck to deck and you had to be up, you know, at night to record everything you could that was up on satellite dishes and all that stuff. So there were many nights I slept on coach's couch. Um, you, you, you know, you were there a long time. It was total immersion. Um, and I was the assistant video guy on the Suns side and I got, through that, got to be the head video guy for the women's team, the Phoenix Mercury, and uh, just got to continue the journey. And I was really fortunate that the scouting staff in Phoenix at the time, everybody was 60 plus. They didn't want to travel all that much. Oh, Griff. And Griff. by the time <laughs> I had been doing that for three years and, wow. and trying to distinguish myself in the video room, and Danny Ainge gave me way too much credit for guys that we drafted that he says I found on video negligible really i mean it's 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 a it's a it's a step to say that to say the very least but he was great he was wonderful really supportive of me and those scouts who didn't want to travel all that much anymore one of them was dick van arsdale and dick is an unbelievable human being everybody calls him van and van supported me with brian in terms of becoming a full-time scout and it just so happened that that corresponded with yao ming's draft year and so if they were going to send somebody to China, who were they going to send? They were going to send me. So I, I got to do that. There um, you go. The circle goes I, around. I got to watch Amari Stoudemire play seven high school games uh, in Lake Wales, Florida, and uh, was fortunate enough that Amari was the guy we drafted. And one thing led to another, and we, we just sort of strung successes on themselves a little bit. And I just got luckier and luckier as we went away along. So... The opportunity just continued to present itself because I was just in the right place at the right time. And and all along, you know, one day this is going to lead to a place where I'm going to be able to put a franchise together. Yeah. You know, along the way, it's funny. I, going into it, I was I had blind faith that it was going to happen. And then while you're in the midst of doing it every day and you're winning and losing and living with every moment of every game, you have more and less faith, more or less faith in that, depending on results all the time. But at the core of who I was, I just really believed I was supposed to do it. Somehow, some way it's going to happen. And I just tried to connect as many dots as I could. But there's no chance it happens without Van, without Cotton Fitzsimmons, without Brian Colangelo. It was just, again, the universe doesn't make mistakes. We, we were all together for a reason. Now you're advancing, you're advancing. Is, is there a certain point 
where you know, you know what? Right now, I can put a franchise together. Or did you know that at age six? Yeah, so I I probably had an arrogance about my ability to do it when I was in Phoenix because Brian and Jerry were as good as there was. And Jerry was, I think, a four-time executive of the year at that point. Um, Brian Colangelo would go on to be a two-time executive of the year. So I was being raised in the business by people that were outstanding. So I figured if I just did what they did, I'd be fine. And what I found, um, the first job that I was given the opportunity to run a team was the Memphis Grizzlies in 2006, I believe it was. Jerry West was stepping away and wanted me to replace him. Now, think about that. Think about the sentence you just said. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy to think about. Um, And I had met Jerry earlier in the year. Dick Van Arsdale introduced us on a scouting trip. And I traveled to Europe that year. And Jerry and one of his assistants, a guy named Gary Colson, traveled to Europe at the same time as well. And we just spent a lot of time together on that trip. And he told me, at the time, this would have been, you know, March probably of a year, of a season, of the 05, 06 season. He said, I'm going to step away and you're going to replace me. And I just thought it was a joke. What? Like, I laughed. Like, I, we, were, we were on this scouting trip and I just laughed. And things go along um, that summer. They end up hiring Mark Ivoroni, actually, to be the head coach before they came and inquired about me. And uh, I made the decision not to take that job. And I mentioned all of that because I thought at that time I would have been really good at it. I've since come to realize I would have been horrifically bad at it because there were so many things I had not learned yet that I needed to be good at it. I didn't know that then. I was 36 and I was completely full of myself and I thought I was ready to rule the world. Um, And the reality is I would have failed miserably because of what I didn't know. Um, so I'm even more grateful that I was able to continue to be exposed to more of the things I needed to know before I ended up with the opportunity. Well, what was it that guided you not to take the job that might've had like a trap door in it? Yeah. I, I think just, we were really good at the time in Phoenix. I wanted to win a championship. I felt like we were really close. Steve Kerr was just coming on board to be the team president. And Steve and I had come to be very close. And Steve really asked me not to leave. He kind of created an environment in which I could stay. Um, And I just, I I knew it wasn't time. For whatever reason, I just knew it wasn't my time. Um, And Steve Kerr, I like to say, was finishing school to some degree for me. I needed Steve so badly in my career. And I had no idea at the time. I was, I was, really driven. I was consumed by the game in such a way that I wasn't living my life in accordance with who I am, like just holistically as a person. I was just blind with basketball. It's all I cared about all day, every day. And Steve really helped me realize that you have to use the clutch once in a while. And I think a lot of that came from his experiences in San Antonio with Popovich and in Chicago with Phil Jackson. But he, Steve has this beautiful peace about him. He's so comfortable in his own skin. And I was never comfortable like that in my own skin. I always felt like I had to prove something to somebody. And Steve really helped me stop doing that and and live in my own space. And I literally, like I 
I could cry thinking about it. But Steve, um, he changed me, changed my life in a really positive way. Forget the, the, the professional side of it, just on a human level. Steve made me a better person. He made me want to be a better person. Um, what makes him so special? Well, I mentioned the comfort in his own skin thing. He's, the Spurs call it being over yourself. Um, Steve grew up in a family where he thought he was the black sheep. You know, most everybody would have looked at a career like Steve Kerr's and said, wow, he must be the superstar in his family. And he always thought of himself as the black sheep. You know, his father was a diplomat um, who was actually assassinated in Beirut. Um, he went through incredible adversity as a young man. He was playing in college when yeah. that happened, right? Yeah, and went through incredible adversity as a young developing person. And he was also in a family of all educators, really bright people who were all really achieved, master's degrees, PhDs, et cetera. And he wasn't that guy. He was the guy who went and played basketball. So he had a humility about himself that he wasn't a big deal even in his own household because all these people are a big deal, right? So I think that really helped. He had a humility about him that is unique, I think, among any professional athlete. I think when you look at their history, they, they're always the biggest deal in their household, typically, unless they're a legacy. Um, but in, in Steve's case, he he really felt like he was the one who was achieving less and he was just playing basketball. So he never had this sense that he was better than anybody else. And he just carries himself with so much authenticity um, that it was really important for me to see. You know, I was I was very Napoleonic, I suppose, in the way I went about things because I was always trying to prove myself. You know, my mom's 4'10 and a half. Um, well, I was always I'm just smaller the than everybody smallest else. guy going to school early. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get it. I get and, it. And going to school in high school with kids that were far more privileged than I was, were far brighter than I was. I always felt like I was the underdog, I think, to some degree. Um, and I really shouldn't have. I mean, I had incredible advantage all the way through. But, you know, you want to feel like you're overcoming something. Um, and Steve really helped me understand what it is to be grateful for what you're given. And that I'll never, ever stop being grateful for that. So things are moving along. Are you comfortable at this point? You mentioned being comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. Are you feeling comfortable at this point? And I'm getting closer to it. You know, I was working towards it. Um, Steve and I made the determination to resign together, basically. Um, he had met with ownership in Phoenix after we had gone to the conference finals. The conversation hadn't gone very well. Um, I think largely because of me, quite frankly, he was trying to take care of me beyond that, which ownership wanted at the time. I think he probably would tell you now that he could have stayed if he hadn't cared so much about helping me. He'll never say that out loud, but I think that's probably true. Um, wow. But I resigned when he did. Um, and the thought was that if ownership wasn't going to allow Steve Kerr to do the job, it's certainly not going to let me do it. Um, so when we left, that was my first, and this was very largely Meredith, my wife's work. Um, that was the first time that I really just leapt and believed blindly that it would all work out. I didn't know how, but I knew it would work out. And um, making the determination to leave the Suns organization was the hardest thing I had ever done at that point. But it was also the first thing I had ever done that was holistically 
living in my own skin. I know this is who I am and I'm okay. It'll, it, it'll be okay. And on the heels of being with Steve for three years, that, that came a lot more naturally than it would have otherwise. Okay. Now we've had conversations before. I know a good deal about you. At what point do medical issues come in? So it's kind of interesting. I think it was that same summer. Uh, it was the summer before, actually, Steve comes on board. So Steve comes on board in 06, 07. And it was uh, the previous off-season. Um, we ended up, well, no, it was 06. Yeah, so it was 06. Um, in August of 06, July in 06, um, I found testicular cancer. Meredith and I were on vacation um, in on the Oregon coast and sort of rolling around from side to side in the car, looking at the ocean over both sides. And I felt incredible discomfort, sort of did a self-exam, which I would strongly recommend all men do. It's not supposed to be painful. Um, and did a self-exam, found something that didn't seem right, went home from vacation, uh, normally planned time. And we had a free agent coming in uh, who was going to get a physical. So I took the player to his physical. And as the player was leaving, I mentioned to our doctor at the time, Dr. Craig Phelps, what I was experiencing. And he said, I'm going to set you up for a ultrasound right this minute downstairs in the lab downstairs. Wow. What timing. So I went that day, I believe it was a Thursday, um, to, to get the ultrasound. And by Thursday of the following week, I had surgery to have the cancer removed. Um, and it was my right testicle that had been the problem and it had not spread. So on that Thursday, I had the surgery. And by that Sunday, I was already making phone calls to agents <laughs> and trying to land free agents <laughs> and doing the job. It really didn't slow me down in any way. It didn't, it didn't change my approach or my lifestyle in much of any way. Uh, and it wasn't until 2011. And, and, and you were telling me that. Back then, people would call you lefty. Yeah, it was yeah, almost yeah. almost like it was... It was sort of a joke, it was actually, a joke. among all of us. Um, and part of it was because the fear factor, when you hear the word cancer, sort of leads you to want to make things funny, right? Right. Um, that's usually the best medicine. Uncomfortability, comfort. Yeah, yeah, and getting comfort in your lack of comfort, right? Like finding comfort in that lack of comfort and finding a way to make yourself laugh at yourself. Um that helped, actually, as, as strange as it seems. It was a blessing that it happened that way. Um, and it wasn't until 2011, I'm now in Cleveland. I'm the assistant general manager in Cleveland. And my five-year follow-up from that first incident is in April of, uh, April of 11. And I went in not knowing anything, just having the follow-up, maybe having some pain, but not assuming anything was wrong. And uh, they told me that I had cancer in, in my left testicle. Um, and my immediate thought was, oh boy, this is really bad. This is a recurrence of cancer. That means it spread from the first one. And the doctor said, well, actually, no, this is sort of a, a good thing for you in a weird way, because what it means is you probably had a genetic defect. It's very rare for it to happen in both. 
So you probably had a genetic defect. And if you were six or 46, they were going to have to come out. But what that typically means is you don't really have problems thereafter. So we were hopeful that was the case. Uh, what we ended up finding out was that the cancer had spread to my lymph nodes. Um, and in May of 2011, I started chemo um, on the same day as the draft lottery, uh, the 2011 draft lottery. Which you had the first draft pick. And we ended up winning that lottery. Uh, Chris Grant and Byron Scott, who was our head coach at the time, Chris Grant was our general manager. They came to my house that day after my first treatment, and we watched the lottery together at the house. And so after this first cancer treatment, we end up winning the lottery to get the draft pick that becomes Kyrie Irving. Um, one of the greatest days of my life <laughs> on the heels oh of God. one of the hardest days of my wow. life. And it's always been that way, that dichotomy between- Discomfort and comfort. It's, it's incredible. And I think if people are honest with themselves and can, can really look at their lives, some of their best days came after the hardest things that happened to them. And I know that's always been the case for me. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate that I was exposed to some very hard times that were usually followed by real gifts. Um, and that finding comfort in your lack of comfort was was profound for me. And certainly at that point, it was a big deal. Now, you use the word gift. I know Matt at Sportique sent you over some Sportique sweatpants. Actually, a whole, a whole batch yeah. of yeah, uh, sportique clothing. A care package. Um, and when I would go through, so the way the chemo worked was I did a nine-week session and it was five hours a day, five days a week. Then you were off for the weekend. You did one session on Monday for three hours. Then you were off for the week. Did a session the following Monday for three hours, off for the week, and then repeat the five day, five hours, five days a week. And on the five hours, five days a week, weeks, I didn't go into work. Um, I would just go to chemo and go home typically. Um, and then on those other days, I would be in the office. Um, but when I wasn't going to work, I came to be comfortable only in the sportique sweatpants that, that Matt had sent. Um, and I would go to chemo in those sweatpants and they almost became like my personal blankie, you know, your safety blankie um, that we all had as kids, you know, the little binky. But I, I think what, what happened for me was I just, I found home in those. I found a, a way to go through the most difficult thing in my life in the most comfortable thing I had at the time. And uh, again, that, that notion of comfort and your lack of comfort, it, it's a meaningful thing to me. And, you know, Matt was always that as a human being for me. Matt's a, Matt's a special human being. Um, so it wasn't an accident that the company he started produced this thing that I came to cling to. So. I, I, f I feel the same way. Yeah. And uh, I, I find myself more and more in my closet is getting more and more sportiki. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just taking over the hoodies. And uh, what, what does he say? Everybody's got to have a hoodie. And if you got a hoodie, it's got to be sportique. Yeah, no question. And it's, it's funny because, you know, the whole, the whole concept when he and, and Jason started the company, you know, their slogan at the time was be unique or you are unique, I believe it was. 
Um, and, you know, then they came up with the idea of Rome and comfort. And I'm actually wearing, as we speak, the, the buffalo of Rome and comfort. Right. Yeah. And this, this became something that in Cleveland, they would, he would send me care packages of Cavaliers branded Sportique. And it became a regular occurrence that when I would get a shipment of this, I would just go pass it out to all the guys. So Kobe Altman went months where he didn't wear anything other than Sportique t-shirts. <laughs> um, and every time the shipment would come, he was there. He was ready. Trent Redden was the same. Um, some of our players would share in on that as well. Um, but it was really funny, actually, how much I looked forward to it because I was sharing this comfort with everybody at wow. the time. You know, so. it, it's kind of an amazing thing to see somebody touch the shirt for the first time. I'm like, wow, that, that's soft. And there's, I, I find a real joy in, in, in gifting that, uh, which is paralleling to what you're talking about. When you start moving forward uh, in Cleveland and, and you bring LeBron James aboard, now basically it's, we got to win a championship. Is there discomfort in that? Yeah, for sure. And it was interesting. You know, I I certainly don't think of it as I brought LeBron back. I think LeBron decided he was coming back. Um, it, LeBron well, landed some, on me. Somebody, <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody had to make him feel comfortable. Yeah. Well, and that that part was that part was definitely us. We we got to you know present a vision to LeBron and and his agent Rich Paul that I think they bought into. Um, but when he made the decision to come back, I found out about 45 seconds before it hit the media. Um, 45 seconds? Literally about 45 seconds. Um, and I, I heard that he was coming back. And one of our owners, Nate Forbes, called and said, the king is coming home. And it seems almost instantaneous that I had a sports center on. And this, the Sports Illustrated story came out about he's coming home. And I literally, everybody was already here in Las Vegas at Summer League um, at the time. And I was kind of alone back in um, Cleveland because we were trying to land the plane on this thing. And I didn't want to travel until we knew the outcome. And what ended up happening was I just threw myself on the floor and just wept. <laughs> I, I was absolutely a mess. And I had that sheer joy that came from, oh, it's such a blessing he's coming. Thank God he's coming because it took him so long to make his decision that options B, C, D, and E were all gone. So if we didn't get A, we were going to have a really bad offseason. And I had so much of my life vested in this moment that I literally threw myself on the floor and wept. And while I'm in the midst of that, I've got about, again, 45 seconds of sheer joy and then it just flipped to utter and complete terror. <laughs> how, how, how do we win a championship? LeBron's here. You have to win a title. So that actually went from finding discomfort in my comfort at that point. Um, and it was, it was remarkable. That experience was, I mean, totally antithetical to how I would want to do team building. There's nothing about that experience that I think is holistically right or positive. 
other than the fact that when he's there, you have a chance to win. But none of it was holistically who I wanted to be as a as an executive, as a team builder, as a well what what's the difference? So when when he came back, we had a team, Kyrie Irving and Tristan Thompson. We had the number one pick in the draft. Uh, we had drafted Andrew Wiggins. We were very young. We'd never won anything together. We'd never been in the playoffs together. All those kids had done was go to the lottery year after year. And, and in Andrew's coach, case, he had just come on board. But. And you had a coach that was built or the, the coach was chosen around building a young team. Yeah, we had chosen David Blatt as our head coach prior to that. And he would have been perfect for the young team that we were going to grow together. We never envisioned LeBron was going to come at that point. We, we always believed he was going to wait a year and see if we were able to deliver on any of the things that we shared in our vision when we spoke to them in the first place. See if we were able to, to actually deliver any of the things we said we were going to do. We just assumed he would watch. And when he made the decision to come back right away, you've now got this team that's never won, a bunch of young kids, and you have to flip the switch and win immediately. Well, in our business, in all business, in all sports, winning is a frequency you have to learn to tune to. You don't just do it. And in this case, it was, you better figure it out. And so it was a, it was a difficult time for me. And again, finding comfort in my lack of comfort. I had to do things I had never wanted to do. I had to have very difficult conversations with LeBron. And he's iconic. And I had to learn to have the courage to tell him what he needs to hear and to love him enough to tell him what he needs to hear. And fortunately, he understood that we wanted to win for his legacy at least as much as he did. A hundred years from now, it's not Babe Ruth's fault he didn't win the World Series. It's Joe McCarthy who didn't do the right things for the Yankees, right? So it's never Babe's fault. It's not going to be LeBron's fault we don't win. I'm going to be the moron who couldn't put a winner around him. <laughs> oh, and I felt incredible pressure in that. And I'm sure it was entirely the wrong way to look at it, but that's that's how I felt. And well, that led to a huge decision involving the coach early early on. Yeah, and a, again, a very difficult thing, and it, finding that comfort in in stepping into big moments. Um, the first year we were together, we started nineteen and twenty, and everyone was calling for David's head, and he had to go away, had to go away. And I knew at that time that it wasn't. David's fault. We had traded for Kevin Love. Um, we were not healthy. We had a lot of pieces that were trying to find their way. LeBron had been out for a couple of weeks and I, I didn't think it was right to hold David accountable at that point. So the first thing I had to do that was uncomfortable was go in front of the media and say, look, this has got to go away. David's going to be our coach. This is a ridiculous narrative, et cetera, et cetera. That was a big moment for me from a leadership standpoint. And then ultimately, when we made the decision the following year, we were 30 and 11. So we were, now you're winning three out of four games. Yeah. Yeah. We were 30 and 11. We were coming off of a finals appearance um, in which the only reason we felt like the only reason we didn't win was Kevin Love and Kyrie were injured. Had they been healthy and we won that championship, I don't know what would have happened uh, the way it all came together. But we were 30 and 11, and I just knew to the, five, to the core of me, uh, with every fiber of my body, that we needed to make a change. So now if you had made the change a year before, everybody would have thought— They understood it. Th yeah, and now— <laughs> Yeah. Who fires a coach that 
is got a 750 winning percentage. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I think about it fairly often because Dane Gilbert and his ownership group were unbelievable in their willingness to invest in the process. They spent money that nobody had ever spent. That team was the first team in history. That first year LeBron came back. We're the first and only team in history to go from having maximum cap space to being a taxpayer by the mid-season point. Nobody had ever done that before. We sort of invented cap space along the way. And the CBA was changed to outlaw a lot of what we did. But Dan was willing to do anything to win. And so Dan, when we spoke about the potential to, to remove David, David said, nobody ever fires a head coach when they're 30 and 11. And I asked him, I said, are you telling me I don't have the courage to do it or that I don't have your permission? And he said, no, I mean, it's, you can do what you want to do. I said, okay, well then we're doing it. And that was another moment for me where I realized I had to be comfortable in, in a space that I had never been comfortable before. And that was, damn it, I know the right thing to do and we're doing it. I was always the consensus builder and it was time for me to sort of step up. And so we did. So you step up and how does the rest of the season play out? So first we have to convince Ty Lu uh, to take the job. Uh, Ty did not want to take the job. He was very close to David. He, he did not want to take over the reins as the head coach. Um, and it took a lot of convincing. Um, and I think remains very close to David. Um, Ty took over the job and, and we ended up building upon some good defensive habits. We sort of found a little bit of magic with lineups and things that Ty was doing, but we just steamrolled the Eastern conference through the playoffs and Ty became one of, I think only two guys, I think Pat Riley's the other to take over a team mid season and win a championship. And, and but that it wasn't an easy thing because you got down three to one yeah. to Golden State. They had beaten you the year before. Yeah. And not only you're down three to one, but that fifth game is at Golden State. Yeah, it was it was amazing actually. Talk about discomfort. It, it was yeah, it was incredibly uncomfortable. And I went to bed the night we lost game four. Um in Cleveland. Com yeah, completely inconsolable. I mean, I was beyond help. Um, I was a mess. And I just felt like we had left so much on the table. We, we had blown so many opportunities. It just didn't feel right that we were down 3-1. And I woke up the next morning and I was completely convinced we were going to win. I was giggling what, like, hysterically. My wife, it's like 4.30 in the morning and Meredith says, what is wrong with you? And I said, I just know we're going to win. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, we are the only team in the world that would have, like in history, that would have needed to create these circumstances to win from. But we were so arrogant that we really believed we could do anything we wanted to do whenever we wanted to do it. And I guess in hindsight, maybe we modeled my own arrogance. I don't know. But um, our guys really believed they were supposed to win. But I knew unequivocally we were going to win. Um, so I fired off an email to all the employees and let them know we were winning and let our players know we were winning and Draymond Green got suspended. That didn't hurt. <laughs> and, and things took off from there. And you win. The Cavaliers win seven games. What is it? Is that a comfortable moment? What's, what's that like? 
So it was and it wasn't. It was an incredibly um, joyful moment. You know, I was with Trent Redden and Kobe Altman were with me in the stands and we hugged each other and cried a little bit. And uh, on the court, the celebration was was amazing. Uh, it was really cool to see. And before we even made it off the court, one of our owners turns to me and says, so how are we going to do this again? And I just lost it. I was, what do you mean? This is 25 years of my life. I'm going to go get doused with champagne. I, I don't know how I'm going to do this again. And this is the first time Cleveland has won a championship 52 in 52 years. years. 52 years. How are we going to do it again? Um, and it was really, it was a profound moment for me. It was, uh, it was overwhelming, actually. And, and we went in and everybody sprays champagne and everything's wonderful. And I walked into a broom closet there in Oakland and closed the door and just sat there and bawled because I knew I wasn't supposed to be there anymore. I, I knew that winning wasn't, what? I knew that winning wasn't a destination and everything I'd ever wanted in my life. I thought professionally, if we could just win a championship, if we could just win a championship. This is I'd you at six I'm, years old. You proved prove everything good, you thought. I'd prove I'm good enough if we could just win a championship. And I realized it didn't prove anything. It does. It doesn't. It doesn't change who you are. It, what you hope happens is that championships are the residue of doing things the right way in a holistically positive way. This championship was one that was um, a relief. It wasn't a joy. It was, oh, thank goodness we got that done. It wasn't you were grateful and happy to see it happen. I was really happy for the fans was really happy for Cleveland. The outpouring of love from the team or, or for the team when we landed was mind-numbing. Um, and I took great joy in watching that expression of joy in the city. But for me personally, I knew I wasn't meant to be there anymore. And it was... Uh, again, That's wild. Finding comfort in your lack of comfort. Um, I was okay in that space. And Meredith was okay in that space. She, she was fine with that. Um, because the fit of things just weren't right. You know, we won despite ourselves. We didn't win because we deserved it necessarily. We won despite ourselves. And LeBron was so good. Kyrie was so good. Kevin Love was so talented. They were going to find a way to make it work. And they sacrificed for one another in an incredible way. Our front office sacrificed for one another in an incredible way. But it just wasn't. It wasn't the expression of greatness that we envisioned. I think just holistically, spiritually, it didn't feel right. Is that the feeling that you knew? Hold it. I'm going to do this again someday. And when I do, I have a certain form that I want this to play out in. But I'm going to need the right team. I'm going to need the right owner in, in order to figure it out my way. Yeah, I was, I was really, really lucky that because we won um, the championship, I, I became somebody that got an opportunity to talk to other teams about their jobs. Um, I became somebody who you sort of had to talk to. I didn't deserve that, but it, you win a championship, that's what happens. So I got to meet with several different ownership groups, and the fit just didn't feel right really in any of them ultimately. Some of them felt more right than others at different steps along the way, but I just knew that's not where we were called to be. 
Um, so I started. But it almost doing... sounds like there's something in your mind now where you know. Oh, no question. So you could walk in a room and say, you know what? It's not going to fit here. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, we talked about I could always sort of divine the right energy for myself. Right. Um, I just knew it didn't feel right in other places. And I think what ultimately changes is because I, I did media for a couple of years and, and did XM radio and NBA TV and did the things I did. Um, I found my love of the game again. You know, you're so, when you're, when you're with a team and the only thing that's going to mark success for your organization is winning a championship, right. you're so caught up in every result that you don't enjoy, at least I didn't. Now, I can't say other people who are much better at me than this are at this than I am, probably don't have this feeling. But I had a feeling of every result was a really big deal. And you get so caught up in wins and losses and following the rest of the league relative to how it impacts you that I didn't love the game anymore. I didn't love the NBA. I didn't love the game of basketball. And so stepping away from it, not having any vested interest in it helped me really find the love of the game again because I could just watch it to enjoy it. And so I I really got to sort of rekindle that part of me that did this because he loved it. At some point you do it because it's what you're chasing, right? And I wasn't chasing anything anymore. And I wasn't sure I was ever going to do it. And once the opportunity to sit down with Mrs. Benson and her group and Mike Ford, um, who ran the search for it, came about, um, I just knew pretty instantaneously that's where I wanted to be. So, so is, it, is it something where you walk into a meeting and in five minutes, you know, yeah, this is the, the feeling that I need to feel in order to be comfortable being uncomfortable in whatever way I'm going to have to be uncomfortable. Yeah. So um, I met Mrs. Benson that day. She came in the door, um, in the front door, and I actually opened it for her um, and introduced myself. And she went upstairs, and 20 minutes later or so, they brought me up. And when I met her... um, I really was struck by it. she's she's almost regal. She has a grace and an elegance to her that's really unique. And I'd never met anybody in the NBA who projected that before. Um, so it felt special then, felt, felt unique. And I walked in the room and Mickey Loomis was there. He's, he's the executive vice president of football operations for the Saints. Um, he's probably as successful as anyone in the history of the NFL has ever been doing what he does. He's about as good as you can be at his job. He was there. I had some awareness of who he was professionally. Dennis Lausha was there. Uh, Ed Lang, the CFO, was there. Mrs. Benson was there. Mike Ford was there. And then Pat McKinney from HR was in the room. And uh, I could tell everyone was fully engaged in this process, which felt good. It felt like a family a little bit. I could feel how familial they were with each other, which had an important role in it. That's what you were looking for. Yeah, I I wanted it to feel like we were all pulling in the same direction. And I could tell her leadership group was, and they cared about each other, and they spoke highly of each other, and they liked being in each other's presence. And there was an energy to them as people that was really unique. But Mrs. Benson was just 
she's a population of one. I mean, there's nobody like her anywhere in sports. And it became really clear to me that she views the team as an extension of the community we are, we're in. You know, it's that she's, we're all caretaking for a sacred trust and it's the team for the city. And we don't own anything. We're taking care of it. And I, I think because she has that vision and has been so successful with the Saints, um, I really felt confident that if, if I was there playing with that energy that we would be able to do something pretty special. So I, I went from, frankly, practicing for another team's job um, and so trying you, to get ready to for a another interview, interview. Right. <laughs> thinking I was just going to practice and head to the next interview. I went from that to, well, what do I need to do to be here? I really want to be here. Um, and I remember it really vividly, actually. Mickey Loomis asked me at the end of the, the meeting, he said, so have you decided you want the job yet? And I gave him some really terrible answer um, about, you know, I'm intrigued. I'm certainly intrigued. Whatever I said, oh, I have no idea, goodness. but I didn't say the right thing. Wow. And I didn't say what was in my heart. And so that night I, I was really restless. I didn't feel good about it. And the next day I called him and I said, you know, I thought about what you asked me, you know, am I interested in the job? And I said, you're damn right. I am. I, I want this. And I, I knew at that point from his reaction that we were definitely meant to be together, but it was, uh, it was a powerful day. It really was. Okay. So now you are in a new place with everything you've learned, everything you started out with, everything you wanted to achieve. And next thing you know, you win the lottery again. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> this is like winning the lottery twice. Yeah. And you get Zion Williamson. Like, what's your feeling as like the pieces are coming together? One of the questions I was going to ask you before, and maybe it's good that I saved it up, was did you do jigsaw puzzles when you were a kid? Did you like the idea of putting puzzle pieces together? I did. I did actually. Um, I wasn't terribly good at them, but, uh, cause I didn't have patience. So I, I was fine with it and enjoyed it a lot. And then I would get to the point where I was so ADD, I would just move right, from next. thing to thing. And, uh, you can't be like that in team building. So it's been good to sort of temper that part of myself. Um, but the lottery thing, when, when we did the press conference in new Orleans afterwards, I, I spent time with Alvin Gentry alone and I told him, I said, you know, we're going to win the lottery, right? <laughs> and he said, um, yeah, well, let's do it. And I said, no, Alvin, seriously, we're winning. It's done. You can book it. We're going to win. And he looked at me and he said, you're serious. I said, yeah, no, I'm serious. We're winning. And Jeff Cohen, one of the owners of the Cavaliers, uh, who is no longer part of the ownership group, but he was at the time that we won the lottery three times in four years in Cleveland. And ironically, the only year we didn't win it was the year the New Orleans Pelicans won it to draft Anthony Davis. Wow. Jeff Cohen used to say, he, would, he was in the back room where the lottery balls were drawn. And he would say, I don't need a good luck charm or anything else because I've seen it. And if you see it, you can believe it. And I was, oh, hey, ha, 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 ha. And I, 
I just connected to the energy one day and understood exactly what he was talking about. And I called him and I said, hey, we're, we're going to do something where we, we have a season ticket holder who's going to give us a, her good luck charm. I don't know what it will be, but we're having this contest and someone's going to give us a good luck charm and I'm going to bring something and I want Alvin to bring something. So is there anything that you have that you used as your good luck charm uh, when you won the lotteries for Cleveland? And he said, I don't believe in any good luck charms. I said, Jeff, you had to have done something the same way each time. He said, I wore the same tie. I said, so send me the tie. <laughs> so he sent me the tie and Alvin Gentry wore the tie in the back room. And uh, when I handed him the tie, I said, this is the winning tie. Um, a woman by the name of Connie Halfen won the contest to send us a good luck charm. And when we won the lottery in 20, what was it, 14? When LeBron came back. So when we won the lottery in 2014, I had just taken over. And I was wearing an angel on my lapel. It was from my grandmother who had passed away that year at trade deadline. It was her angel. And I had it on my lapel. And fast forward to we're going to do this contest. And I have no idea. And no one in New Orleans knows the story of my grandmother's angel on my shoulder. And I'm on Twitter. And I see from the New Orleans Pelicans Twitter feed that Connie Halfen is the winner and she's sending us an angel. Oh, man. <laughs> I went, yes, <laughs> we've got this. This is a done deal. Um, so she sent an angel that she'd had in her family 56 years. It's a wooden angel. And it had been with them through all kinds of things in life, all kinds of travails, and had taken them through many things. And she gave this to us and she wasn't sure she got kind of cold feet. She wasn't sure she, she could let it go initially. And um, so I had that on stage and then I have it in my pocket and I have my grandmother's high school class ring on my pinky finger and I'm swirling <laughs> that around the angel. And I was so zoned out trying to manifest this energy in my own mind that I really don't even notice we've moved up. So they call out the numbers, and when we don't appear at nine, I, I was supposed to have the wherewithal to know that means we had to have moved up because two teams had already moved up below us. Well, I couldn't do any of this math. I was completely <laughs> numb. When they call eight, I still don't get it. They call seven, which is where we would have been, and we're not there. And I finally get hip to the fact that we've moved up. And I'm so zoned out, like really trying to just manifest this and thinking so intently on this energy. And the Atlanta Hawks representative, um, uh, Jamie Gertz, the actress, is one of their owners. And she turns to me and she says, Griff, I think you have to stand up. You're, you're in the top four. I said, oh, wow, thank you. So I go stand up. I'm at the front of the stage. And all that morning, I was positive that we were going to get number two. I just had this vision we were getting two, we're getting two, we're getting two, we're getting two. And I told Kobe Altman of the Cavs, look, we're getting two. I'm not greedy. You get one. I want you to get one. They ended up getting five. But um, I was fixated on two. So as they're calling all the numbers, I'm thinking, we're, I can't believe it. I'm right. We're going to get two. They call three, and it's not us. I went, 
of course, we're going to get two. I knew it. We're going to get two. And I've got this dialogue going on in my head so loud that I can't hear what's actually being said because I'm talking to myself. (laughs) And they call out, Memphis is number two, and Elliot Perry is standing next to me. And Elliot had been with us in Phoenix. We called him Socks. And I turned to him and I said, Elliot, who got one? I mean, who got two? Who got two? And he said, hey, man, congratulations. And I said, but who got two? He said, Griff, I did. You guys won. And I went, we won. (laughs) It never entered my mind we'd actually get one because all day long I was fixated on two. It was really funny the way it all came together. And and now you've drafted Zion. Season's coming. How, How do you feel? Comfortable? A little discomfort? Where yet? So we were really fortunate that the NBA had arranged that whoever won the lottery was going to get to meet with Zion that night. And so at 9.30 the night we won the lottery, Alvin Gentry and I meet with Zion. And he came into the room and we spent about 20 minutes with him. And we were so taken by him. I asked if his parents were there. He said they were. So I asked him to have his parents come down to the room. And uh, Sharonda, his mother, and Lee Anderson, his stepfather, came down. And Coach Anderson had raised him as a basketball player from a very early age. And they were so warm, and it was such an impressive family. Their values were so much in line with what we wanted to do in terms of the way we raised our family. Um, With the Pelicans, That I, I, I told them, I said, well, if you choose us, we choose you. We're going to raise a family that loves each other enough to tell each other what they need to hear. And let me tell you what you're going to hear from the media between now and the end. Here's what I'm going to do very intently to make sure that Zion is not the face of this. I want Zion to get to be an 18, 19-year-old kid. And it was really important for me that they understood we, we wanted Zion to grow at his own rate. He's not there to be the savior of our franchise. And... Everything we did after that meeting was done very mindfully to take the onus off of Zion to be viewed as that. He's a very unique player. He's, he's not somebody like a LeBron James whose presence alone means you're gonna, he's going to score 30 points. That's not how Zion plays. Zion's much more of an ancillary mindset, and he doesn't want to be singled out. He doesn't want to be asked to carry the team. He wants to do whatever needs to happen to win. It just so happens he's touched by the hand of God to play. And he's this phenomenal force of nature on the court. He's got this energy that's so unique and and he's so um, sort of transcendent for people in terms of the guttural sensation you get when you watch him that you lose sight of the fact that everything he does is about winning. All of the little things that happen in a game, Zion wants to do those things. But what that means is he may not score 40 points tomorrow night. And if that's what the expectation is, it's not fair. Because Zion could score four points and have eight rebounds and be the best player on the court. And if he wins, it's fine. Um, and that's okay with you. And I'm, I prefer that. You know, I don't want Zion to be the next anybody. I want him to be the first Zion. And the only way he can do that is to be in his, you know, authentic space and to be comfortable uh, where he needs back. to be. Yeah. 
Um, and so we're really blessed that we happen to have a player on our team in Drew Holiday who's capable of being that dude. This is his team. And Zion's going to get to grow up watching a grown-ass man who knows how to win games and is about all the right things as a family person. Everything that we want our organization to represent, Drew Holiday is. And so Zion gets to grow up in an organization that's already got a face. And it's a really special thing to get to to be part of that. You know, I'm just, as we close this, I'm just thinking of all the different places you had to go to reach this point in your life. And as you're describing this, I got a feeling of a sense of comfort that you're in the right place at the right time to do what you want to do over a long time period. Yeah, for sure. And it, I think back on the right place and the right time, you know, the only reason I got to do this at all was that I was really fortunate to be in the right place at the right time with the sons. And it was an incredible um, kind of confluence of, of, of happenstance that got me to that point. And the blessing of it all um, to be in a situation now where everything comes full circle and I know we're in the right place at the right time now. And the, the comfort that I have is that I've learned how to be comfortable in my lack of comfort. There are things that are not particularly enjoyable to do that I'm much better at now than I ever would have been. And you and I have talked about this in the past. Cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. Chemo was the best thing that ever happened to me because I proved to myself I was tough enough to overcome anything. And... I think when you do that and you can live in that space authentically and know you're going to be fine, you don't have to press anymore. You know, I'm much more at peace with myself. And because of that, it helps me bring other people the peace they need to do what they do well. So it's all been an incredible blessing. I can't wait for the season to get started because I'm behind you. I want to see what you do. I want to see what the team develops into over years. And I'm just so grateful to have this conversation and to always be able to look back on it. And not only that, but when I face uncomfortable things in life, I I think of you. I really appreciate it, Cal. And I've come to really appreciate our relationship. I, I think the thing that's the most powerful to me in all of this is that comfort um, that you speak of. It lives in all of us. We just have to find a way to find it. And uh, hopefully we can help outfit you with a bunch of Pelican Sportique here so you can be comfortable in your your fandom as well. I will be proud to wear wear that Sportique Pelican gear. (laughs) And uh, I'll get you a big questions t-shirt that uh, Sportique puts out. Do a little trade. Like well, now, now I'm learning to trade. Exactly. I might actually need the hat you have on. That's a special I'm going to, I'm going to work on that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, brother. That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss for pushing me to start this podcast. If I never would have met Tim, probably never would have met Matt and Jason at Sportique. And that means I never would have had the conversation you just heard with David Griffin. I've spent the last two acts of my life interviewing icons who've shaped the world during the last half century, 
traveling around the planet, meeting the women of my dreams, raising three great kids, and surrounding myself with some wonderful friends. And yet somehow, this podcast gives me the sense that the best 31 years of my life are ahead of me. So let me thank Matt and Jason at Sportique for coming along on the journey. You can join us by going to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and seeing how great the clothing this company makes is and how great it's going to make you feel. At the very least, everybody should have the privilege of knowing how good a Sportique hoodie feels. And if you use the offer code CAL, you'll get a 20% discount. Makes me feel good just to say that. Also want to thank my friends at WeWork, because every time I walk into a WeWork, the possibility of something good happening just ratchets right up. I never know who I'm going to meet and what great place it might take me to. So if you need office space, check out WeWork. I'm telling you, what other office space sends you an email telling you to join the people working all around you for a root beer float after work? You can get a communal table, an office conference room, podcast space, even theater space at WeWork. And a global access pass gives you the ability to feel at home when you're a long way from home. Go to www.we.co slash cal for a 20% discount. See what I'm talking about at WeWork. I hope you're grateful for all the good people who are around you in life. It's the surest way to attract more good people. Cheers. Cheers.